Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. This week's podcast is dedicated to the 52,281 killed in action in the Vietnam War. Also, the 153,372 wounded in action in the Vietnam War. And the 1,584 missing in action in the Vietnam War and their families, who would not have had to serve in Southeast Asia if John F. Kennedy had lived. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time some 38 minutes ago. This is just in from Dallas. Homicide Chief Captain Will Fritz said today the assassination case against Lee Harvey Oswald is cinched. He said flatly, this is the man that killed President Kennedy. 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. President, no, they're taking me in because of the fact that I'm in Missouri. I'm just a passing. There is Lee Oswald. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. Oswald has been shot. There is no question about it. Oswald has been shot. And so it ended. The life of Lee Harvey Oswald. The man who was arrested two days earlier, shortly after the assassination of the president, and quickly accused of being the lone nut gunman. But how this 24-year-old former Marine got to the basement of the Dallas Police Headquarters may be the most important aspect of the assassination story. And all that happened to a large extent under the direction of two people, Ruth and Michael Payne. I have always been curious about the role the Paynes played in the lives of Lee Oswald and his wife Marina. And today we'll talk a little bit about that role. Mrs. Payne, you were with Mrs. Oswald on the news of the president's death was broadcast. Did she indicate any feelings to you at that time? She uh, said to me how terrible she felt this was for Mrs. Kennedy. What a terrible thing to lose her husband. What a terrible thing for the two children not to have their father. And uh, then again, later after we had been uh, to the police station, we talked that evening, Friday evening, she said to me, I never could have imagined when I was talking to you about my sympathies for Mrs. Kennedy that I too might be losing my husband if my children would be without a father. Ruth Payne today is an unassuming 91-year-old living in a Quaker retirement community in Northern California, and she may hold vital secrets to what has been called the crime of the century. 
With 60 years having passed since the deaths of John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald, only a handful of critical witnesses are still alive. Of that small and ever-dwindling group, Ruth is arguably the single most important. Ruth Payne was born in 1932. She was educated at Swarthmore College. A committed Quaker, she was an active member of the American Civil Liberties Union. Ruth married and settled in Irving, Texas. Her husband, Michael Payne, found employment as a research engineer with the Bell Helicopter Company, whereas Ruth was employed as a part-time teacher of the Russian language at St. Mark's School in Dallas. Again, Ruth was a part-time teacher of the Russian language at St. Mark's School in Dallas. Michael Payne's mother is a member of the wealthy Ford family. His stepfather was Arthur M. Young, inventor of the Bell helicopter, and Michael worked with security clearance at Bell. It should be noted that Kennedy had signed National Security Action Memo 263, pulling all American advisors out of Vietnam by the end of 1965. That order was rescinded four days after the assassination by the new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Bell sold thousands of helicopters during the Vietnam War. Later, Michael Payne was president of the CIA front company Gibraltar Steamship Corporation that leased Swan Island in the Caribbean for the CIA, where the agency set up Radio Swan, which was used during the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, among other things. The Forbes owned Nashaw Island near Cape Cod, and this is where it gets interesting. Michael Payne's mother, who was Ruth Forbes Young's, her best friend was Mary Bancroft, a CIA agent and spy. She was also the longtime mistress of Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA and a prime member of the Warren Commission. Dulles was fired by Kennedy after the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion, and Dulles hated Kennedy because of it. Both Bancroft and Dulles were frequent visitors to Nashaw Island and knew Michael and Ruth Payne well. Ruth and Michael spent summers on Nashaw Island, and Ruth will spend time there in the summer of 1963 right before leaving to pick up Marina Oswald from New Orleans to live with her for the two months before the assassination. Ruth's father is William A. Hyde. He did extensive work for the Agency for International Development in Latin America. AID was a well-known cover for CIA agency personnel, and Hyde's filed reports were directly routed to the CIA. Further, in 1957, he was under consideration by the CIA for covert use in Vietnam. Ruth Payne's sister is Sylvia Hoke. Hoke was a psychologist and an employee for the CIA beginning in 1954. After leaving Nashaw Island late in the summer of 63, Ruth traveled to D.C. for several days with Sylvia before leaving to pick up Marina. You seriously couldn't have more CIA connections in two families if you tried. But we have one more CIA connection that must be identified. He is George DeMorenshield, a white Russian who was a petroleum geologist and CIA field agent. When Lee Oswald returned from the Soviet Union, he is immediately introduced to George DeMorenshield, who befriends the Oswalds and provides the resources for them. Later, DeMorenshield will tell friends that he handled Oswald for the CIA and did in fact hand him over to the Paines. The second explosive revelation in the sealed documents also links the CIA directly to Oswald. While living in Dallas, Oswald was befriended by Russian-born George DeMorenshield. Investigators determined he was a contract agent for the CIA in Central America and the Caribbean. In 1977, 
Moments before he was to be interviewed by House investigators, DeMorenchil blew his brains out with a 20-gauge shotgun. House investigators believe he was a crucial link between the CIA and Lee Harvey Oswald. There is no question that the sealed JFK files are extremely embarrassing for the CIA. House investigators have told Inside Edition that the agency did not fully cooperate in their investigation and that the CIA had final say in the report that the House Assassinations Committee made public. Thus, the public report makes no mention of the CIA's links with Lee Harvey Oswald. But the secret documents are another story. One interesting sidelight, the movie JFK was partially based on Jim Garrison's investigation in New Orleans. Well, House investigators uncovered evidence that the CIA planted nine agents inside the Garrison investigation to feed him false information. It is George the Mornshield who will have a party on February 22nd, 1963, making sure Lee and Marina are present and inviting Ruth Payne. Pretty interesting coincidence. Ruth will immediately cozy up to Marina under the premise of wanting to practice and learn the Russian language, yet Ruth was already a teacher of the Russian language. Ruth will continue to contact the pregnant Marina and then invite her and her infant daughter to live with her in Dallas. Mrs. Payne, how did you first become acquainted with the Oswald? I met them through uh, friends at a party last winter, uh, and then uh, saw more of Marina later. I was interested in talking with her because uh, I was trying to learn the language. Then later, they had financial difficulties when he lost his work, and uh, eventually led to my inviting her to live with me in uh, Dallas while she was waiting for her baby that was born in October and to stay on a couple of months with me just as one woman with another uh, can help when babies are small and then I think they expected to get an apartment together when they could afford it say after Christmas sometime. The Mornshield, having handed off the Oswalds to Ruth and Michael Payne, will now go to Washington, D.C. for meetings with Army Intelligence and then to Haiti, where he receives a reported $300,000 in his bank account without performing any services. By this time, February of 1963, Ruth and Michael will claim to be separated. They have two very small children, a two-year-old and another three-and-a-half-year-old. Both Ruth and Michael will make statements that they did not like Lee Oswald very much, and even accuse him of physically accosting Marina at times. So with two very small children and a father who was not going to be present since he is separated, Michael and Ruth invite people they don't even know with a possible propensity for domestic violence by Lee to live in extremely close contact with their children? Does that make sense? What father or mother would invite or even allow a stranger with a propensity for domestic violence to be around their children? And this man Lee was supposedly a defector to our country, to our arch enemy, the Soviets? Something doesn't add up. Ruth will state that they invited Marina and her children to move in, but not Lee. But this makes no sense as Lee was at the Payne household every weekend. Further, Michael, who was supposed to be estranged from Ruth at this time and living in Fort Worth, will nonetheless come to the Payne household almost every week. 
But instead of spending time with his children, he will take Lee to no less than six right and left-wing meetings. Michael seems to be clearly setting Lee Oswald up to be accused of extreme political activism at some soon-to-be time. But let's go in chronological order. February 22, 1963, Ruth meets the Oswalds at the Morn Shields party. She keeps in contact. Early in August of 63, Ruth packs her two children and takes a long road trip, stopping first at the Nashaw Island to spend weeks with her in-laws, even though she's supposed to be separated from their son. In September, Ruth leaves Nashaw Island and travels to Washington, D.C., where she spends time with her sister, Sylvia Hulk, who is a psychologist for the CIA and has been employed by the agency since 1954. Hoke's husband also works for intelligence and the Agency for Internal Development. From Washington, Ruth heads to New Orleans, where she picks up pregnant Marina and her daughter and takes them to live with her in Irving, Texas. It will be two months until Kennedy will be killed. Then Michael Payne, a strange husband of Ruth, still comes to the Payne home almost every weekend, but instead of spending time with his children, he takes Lee Oswald to no less than six political meetings. Does any of this make sense if they were not babysitting the Oswalds for the CIA and making sure to set up Lee Oswald for any type of later inquiry into his supposed radical political beliefs? Just wait, it gets better. It is Ruth who gets the job for Lee at the Texas School Book Depository. She will claim that it was just coincidence and that she heard of the job from a neighbor. But it's funny, because Ruth will first deny and then admit that a better job offer came from an unemployment agency in the way of a phone call for Lee. But she never told him about that opportunity. Now let's move to the day of the assassination. An hour after the killing of Kennedy, Michael is at his office at Bell Helicopter in Fort Worth. He calls Ruth, and remember that this is before Lee Oswald has even been reported to be a suspect. What Michael doesn't know is that the phone call is being monitored and recorded. Michael is reported as saying that Oswald will be blamed for the killing, but they both knew who was really responsible for the assassination. Ruth will admit that the phone call took place, but will try to deny that that is actually what was said. Uh, with Mrs. Oswald when the news of the president's death came. We were both sitting on the sofa. We had been watching... <clears throat> the morning proceeding on the television and I translated to her when I heard it that he had been shot and the blood spurted from him and uh, we were I was crying and she was very upset um, and uh, indeed this was our condition when uh, men came from the uh, police department in Dallas that was the first that we had any indication that uh, her husband was associated with this tragic event. In Dallas, the police will do two searches of the Payne home the day of the assassination, and yet the backyard photos are not found or listed in any inventory sheets. They will be found in a separate search the next day, and the Imperial Reflex camera that took the famous backyard photos and a miniature Minox spy camera won't be located until weeks later. Yet somehow the Imperial Reflex camera that supposedly took the backyard photos will miraculously show up from the already searched bags of Oswald in the garage of the Payne home. There are Dallas police reports online that confirm all these facts and findings. The Minox spy camera will be actually withheld by the FBI 
and it'd be claimed by Michael Payne, who said he had dropped it in salt water and cleaned it with kerosene, eliminating, of course, any fingerprints. It gets worse. Several weeks after the assassination, real doubt was being shed on whether Lee Oswald had ever even traveled to Mexico City and was claimed by intelligence services. The CIA had provided photos and voice of someone clearly not Oswald. Miraculously, again, it is Ruth Payne who comes to the rescue, suddenly finding postcards and printed material in a room used by Oswald in her home. And then finally, the General Walker letter. Eight days after the assassination of President Kennedy, on November 30th, Ruth Payne supposedly inadvertently discovers evidence that Lee Oswald had attempted to assassinate General Walker. Among the letters that Ruth Payne reportedly sent to Marina was a thick book of household advice in Russian. Ruth said the book contained an undated note left by Lee for Marina on April 10th. But yet the note was undated. How did she know it was left on April 10th? April 10th is a supposed date that there was an attempt on General Walker's life. How convenient is that? When the note was analyzed, seven sets of prints were on it, but none of them belonged to either Lee or Marina Oswald. There are several other reasons to doubt the authenticity of the note. Ruth Payne's home had been searched thoroughly on the afternoon of the assassination and again the following day, when Payne claimed to have seen officers specifically looking for loose papers within books. The inventory of items discovered is 49 pages long, but does not mention the note. Although the FBI's handwriting expert considered that the note was in Oswald's handwriting, only one of the three experts who were consulted by the House Select Committee on Assassinations considered the note to be authentic. Something else is funny. Michael Payne will move back into the home right after the assassination. Ruth Payne was a key witness for the Warren Commission and provided detailed information on the activities of Marine Oswald and Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination. Ruth herself was asked more questions than any other individual witness by the Commission. Although absolved by the Commission of any involvement in Kennedy's murder, the couple has remained the target of intense suspicion by those who don't buy the Warren Report's conclusion that Oswald was a lone gunman who killed JFK. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison later suggested that Ruth Payne might have been involved in setting Oswald up as, quote, the patsy. He also claims that he had tried to examine the income tax returns of Ruth and Michael Payne, but was told that they had been classified as top secret. What was so special about this particular family that made the federal government so protective of it? After the assassination, Marina and Lee Oswald's mother, Marguerite, briefly stayed with Ruth Payne until Marina was taken into custody by the Secret Service. Marguerite and Lee's brother, Robert, did not like Ruth Payne, which may have influenced Marina Oswald. They thought Payne sought attention for herself, an opinion Marina would later express before the Warren Commission. Ruth wrote to Marina often, with letters that took an almost desperate tone, but received no response except for a Christmas card. They met briefly in 1964, but have not seen each other since. Payne heard news about Marina through author Priscilla Johnson McMillan, until McMillan's relationship with Marina broke off in the early 1980s. I can't speak about Ruth Payne in this episode without mentioning Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig. In my mind, those two will always be tied together. 
In the quiet of the Dallas Public Library back in 1993, I reviewed the 18-year-old obituary of Roger Craig. I remembered the story of Craig's sighting of a green Nash Rambler station wagon in front of the Texas School Book Depository on November 22nd, immediately after the assassination. His account became important when a claim arose that Marina Oswald's friend and confidant, Ruth Payne, owned a similar vehicle. You can go back and listen to episode 9 of this podcast to get a detailed look at this incident that Craig witnessed just moments after the assassination. Author and researcher Penn Jones Jr., who I got to spend a lot of time with, briefly reviewed this incident in his 1969 paperback, Forgive My Grief. On page 29, Jones asserted, quote, Craig insisted from the day of the assassination that he saw Oswald or an Oswald look-alike or double race down the grassy area and get into a station wagon like the one owned by Mrs. Ruth Payne of Irving, end quote. Curiously, this important allegation that the Payne vehicle might have been used in the assassination lay dormant until Jones published the story. Here's Roger Craig describing the incident that Penn Jones Jr. writes about in his book. As I was searching the south curve of Elm Street, I heard a shrill whistle. And I looked up, and just drew my attention. It was coming from across the street. And there was a light green rambler station wagon driving real slow west on Elm Street. And the driver was leaning over to his right looking up at a man running down the grass. So I immediately tried to cross the street to take these two people into custody for questioning. You know, everybody else was coming to the scene. These were the only two people leaving. And this was suspicious in my mind, you know, at the time. So I wanted to talk to them. But I couldn't get across the street because the city officer who was stationed at Houston and Elm had left his post and the traffic, you know, was so heavy I just couldn't get across the street to him. But I did get a good look at the man coming down the grassy knoll. And he got in the station wagon and they drove west on Elm Street. I called Captain Fritz at his office and gave him a description of the man I saw get into the Rambler. And uh, he told me, and I quote him, it sounds like the suspect we have in custody. Come on up and take a look at him. So I went out and got in my unmarked car and drove to the uh, city hall, went directly to Captain Fritz's office. And uh, we went into Captain Fritz's inner office, and uh, the man was sitting in a chair behind a desk. And there was another gentleman, I assumed he was one of Fritz's people because he had the white cowboy hat on, which was the trademark at that time of the Dallas Homicide Bureau. And Fritz turned to me and said, is this the man you saw? And I said, yes. And he was. So he turned to the suspect and he said, this man saw you leave. At which time the suspect became a little excited. And he said, I told you people I did. And Fritz said, now take it easy, son, talking to the suspect. He said, we're just trying to find out what happened here. He said, what about the car? I didn't say station wagon. He said, what about the car? At which time the suspect leaned forward and put both hands up on the desk and said, that station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't try to drag her into this. Then he leaned back 
very disgustedly said, everybody will know who I am now. Now, this was not a brag. I know it's been blown up to be a brag in the Warren Commission. This was not a brag. This was a man that, that uh, was, he was embarrassed about it. Or disgusted that he had, had uh, uh, blown his cover or, or, or been caught or, or something. You know, it, it, it wasn't a brag. Of all the things we've talked about today regarding Michael Payne, Ruth Payne, Marina Oswald, and Lee Harvey Oswald, I think the most important and damning statement that suggests that Ruth Payne is way more involved in what happened on November 22, 1963 than she will admit is the statement that Oswald said when he was in custody. I don't want you to miss this like so, so many other researchers and investigators have over the years. When Captain Will Fritz was questioning Oswald after the assassination, he mentioned, quote, the car, when questioning how Oswald left the depository after the shooting. Oswald then says, quote, that station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Do not try and drag her into this, end quote. Again, Fritz said car. He did not say station wagon. Oswald is the one that said station wagon. So did Ruth Payne provide the getaway car for the real shooter that Roger Craig said he saw running from the depository after the assassination and get into a green Rambler station wagon? We know for sure the real Oswald left the depository that day on a city bus and then took a cab to his rooming house. We have the bus transfer and testimony from the cab driver to prove that. In my opinion, little old 91-year-old Ruth Payne is more than she seems. We'll see you next week. Country, I'm just a stranger.